from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. A reading from the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Well, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our uh, second text is not Acts 5, 11 through 14. Uh, this was my mistake, sending it off to uh, our publications director. I think it was because I was trying to avoid the lectionary text, which is actually Revelation 5, 11 to 14. Uh, and that's the text, actually, that's going to anchor our time in the sermon in just a few moments. That's on page 234 and 235, if you'd like to follow along in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. John of Patmos is relaying the visions that he has had. 
And this vision in particular is a vision of total and full worship. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, break open this uh, word afresh to us this day so that we'd be changed from those who came into this sacred space to those who've tuned in to worship remotely, that we would hear a word from you, a calling to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, and that you give us exactly what we need to live into that vision and that call. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, during our evening Monday Thursday service, we had a symbolic foot washing. These services took place uh, in the chapel. On Monday Thursday, of course, uh, we not only remember uh, the final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, but we also remember the act of bold humility that, that Jesus performed when he took off his outer robe and he knelt down before his disciples' feet and he washed them. And he said to them, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me, no share with me. Well, we, uh, being good Presbyterians, uh, order, organized and ordered this liturgical act of symbolic foot washing. I say symbolic because all shoes stayed on. Uh, we put two chairs up in the, in the front of uh, the chapel. Uh, the pastors would sit there first, and as people would form lines by way of the outside aisle, they'd come forward, they would kneel down, they would take a towel, and they would rub the towel over the person's shoes uh, and repeat those words that Jesus said, unless I wash you, you can have no share with me. The pastors would go first, and then the next person uh, who had just washed would then sit, and we'd go in order, and then the pastors would would wash, symbolically wash, the feet of uh, the last folks to come forward. Now, in this particular service, the evening, Monday, Thursday service, right in the front pew sat uh, two visitors. They were invited and brought by our bus driver, uh, Julia Brooke. Julia is not only our bus driver, but she's been a lifelong member of this congregation. Julia has gotten to know these uh, two women in particular uh, as she has uh, taken them around town. You see, our bus ministry that, that Julia provides will pick up seniors who don't have their own transportation or who find uh, public transportation to be difficult. And Julia will come and, and she'll pick uh, those folks up. The, she'll take them to a doctor's appointment. She'll take them uh, to the food store or to run errands in general. It's really a, a wonderful ministry that the church uh, provides. So Julie had seen these women earlier in the week and invited them to come to the Monday Thursday uh, service. And 
And as they arrived, the service had just begun and Julia was pushing one of the women in a wheelchair. She was coming to the very front. And as she came into my sight, I could tell that uh, that mobility was an issue for her. I also noticed that she had tremors throughout her body from head to toe, that she was shaking consistently the whole time. So when it came time for the symbolic foot washing, I was a little concerned as to how we would help make this uh, guest feel as included as possible. You know, what do we need to do if she wanted to come forward? Uh, How could we handle that? Could we bring the foot washing station to her? But as the line began to form, she didn't move out of her her seat. She didn't say anything to Julia, and the line started uh, to form. So I thought, well, maybe she's just not going to come forward. Well, the last person in that line on her side of, of the chapel was one of our high school students, and she she sat down, and before I was able to go, because I was batting cleanup, I was going to wash the last person's feet, uh, this woman, this guest, this visitor in the front pew uh, said to Julia, I want to go forward. And, and with all the strength that she could muster, she, she put her, her, her hands uh, on, the, on the front of the pew and pushed herself up, still shaking from head to toe. She said again, I want to go forward. This time I, I heard her and I moved toward her and I, I, I offered her my, my hands. And she put her hands in mine and we sort of shimmied and shuffled out of the pew and came forward as this patient, awestruck teenager waited for this saintly woman to wash her feet. She got to the front, and I wasn't sure if she was able uh, to kneel down. She said to me, I would like to kneel, Pastor, and we had a cushion there, and I helped her down, and she picked up the towel, and she moved it across this student's feet and repeated those words. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you can have no share with me. I then helped her back to her feet, and She sat down in the chair and I got down on one knee and I took the towel and I repeated this liturgical act. And as I did, all I could think about was this woman's determination to participate. All I could think about was this sense inside of her driving her to want to stand, even with her physical ailments, to come and embody the message of the night. The message that Jesus clearly taught each and every one of us that we should love one another as Christ has loved us. Friends, it's in moments like these, and there are many moments like these in the life of our church. As we gather across many hours and in different platforms, in person and remote, many things to note that make us keenly aware of the way in which worship forms us. The ways, in which wor- the ways in which worship, rather, informs us. The ways in which worship shapes the living of our days outside of this time that we gather. Because what we see and what we say and what we do in the context of congregational worship actually works on us. Consciously and subconsciously. What we do here each and every week works on us to orient our lives to God's love for us and for the world and to orient our lives to God's kingdom purposes for us and for the world. 
Our second text this morning is from the fifth chapter of Revelation. And for many of us, if we've ever dared to read the book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament, uh, many of us, including me, find it confusing, find it sometimes frightening. It presents a heavy dose of symbology, and, and for many of us, we show up and we think that we don't have the code to interpret it. There's too much symbolism for us to understand. As I said, this is true in my case, and so I did a very smart thing. On Saturday morning, I texted our scholar-in-residence, Dr. Chris Holmes. And you need to know that Chris is actually in the throes of finishing a manuscript about Revelation. I told you it was a smart move. I texted Chris, and little did I know that he was at his son Micah's soccer game, I said, hey, just real quick, uh, could you give me one sentence describing the whole book of Revelation? Uh, He wrote, uh, I'll get back to you at halftime. And Chris wrote this, Revelation provides the basis of hope for God's transforming purposes. It reveals the meaning of worship. It unveils the nature and shape of evil, and it calls for allegiance to the slaughtered lamb. Now, Chris had no idea that I had made a mistake in putting Acts 5, 11 through 14. He had no idea that I was preaching on Revelation 11 to 14, where we're introduced to the slaughtered lamb. In fact, the book of Revelation references Jesus as the, as the lamb of God about 30 different times in the Entirety, So it's no accident that a scholar on, on Revelation would summarize this book's call to an allegiance of the Lamb of God, the slaughtered Lamb who is Jesus Christ. And what we're introduced to early on in Revelation 5 is a, a scene, a beautiful scene, as Jesus the Lamb is, is enthroned as Lord. And that there are angels and elders and creatures numbering too many to count. It's impossible for human beings to count the amount of beings giving praise, aligning themselves to Christ. They, they, they worship him. They, they praise him. They declare that he alone is worthy of praise. In the Eastertide season, this is the song of the church. This is the song of the church. Singing our alleluias to the risen Christ who is enthroned for all times. Interestingly, the Greek word we translate as worthy that shows up here. Worthy is the lamb. That Greek word is the word axios. It has a parallel in Latin that was used as a, uh, as a cheer for Caesar. You know when the president of the United States walks into a room and they, they play hail to the chief? Well, well, there was a, a song of sorts that was hailed to Caesar. Worthy is Caesar. Axios to Caesar. Caesar is the one who deserves our true allegiance and worth. But what John of Patmos is subversively doing is saying, no, there is one who is even greater than Caesar. There is one who deserves our allegiance, deserves an orientation of our lives to follow his life in and for the world. And his name is Jesus Christ. He alone deserves our true worship, for he alone is the Lamb of God. You see, what Revelation does is it it paints a symbolic portrait of the way things already are. 
This vision of John, and, and, and I hope you can follow me here, this vision of John that what he sees is not something that is far off into the future, but the chorus and the choir that sings Christ's praises actually exists right now. They started singing the day he was raised from the dead. They continued singing as he ascended into heaven. And the song goes on as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church to empower us and equip us for ministry in the world. And so what revelation, what this particular vision is inviting us to do is to join the choir. The choir that exists in heaven, to borrow a phrase from the Lord's Prayer, to sing on earth as they're singing in heaven. And that's what John is inviting the church to do. To find our voice, to find that song, to orient our life to the love and purposes of God. You, you may have noticed that my sermon title this morning was Worship and the Formation of Christian Leaders. This day that we ordain and install ministry leaders, deacons, and, and, and elders, uh, on this particular day, I'm absolutely convinced that the crucible of Christian leadership and the crucible for the Christian life is in congregational worship. Where, where that life is formed, where leadership is formed, it's not being aware of your Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram or, or your innate skills for leadership. But, but it's in worship that we are shaped and formed as leaders and followers of Christ. And, and each time we gather for worship, our hope as a community is that we would be that much more like Christ our lives would be oriented that much more toward his love and toward his purposes. That's why virtually every Sunday I pray something like change us, transform us, make us more into the image of Christ himself. Because that's what we are doing as we worship him because we know this to be true. What we worship is what we become. What we worship is what we become. Do we worship the, the humble servant Lord or do we worship someone or something else. I think in our day of busyness, and, and we're reading a book right now as a senior staff called The Congregation in a Secular Age. It's by uh, a scholar named Andrew Root, and he talks about the busyness of life and the ways in which we fill our calendars with busyness in the hopes that that busyness will provide fullness, that we add and add and add in the hopes that we, our lives would be full. In our time, he argues that, that, that busyness, we think, is synonymous with fullness. And in some ways, the church uh, falls into this trap of busyness. Constantly trying to be busy, to keep up with the busyness of our congregants, of our church, to the point where we know that all the programs that we offer and all the ministries that we have, people can't possibly do it all. And, and people, Ruth says, want to be part of churches that are busy. They want to be part of churches that are busy. And they might not even participate in the busyness. They just want to know that it's there. The person who has a 13-year-old wants to know that youth group is happening each and every week, even though they don't go. Because the time that they decide to go, when they're not so busy... They have it at their disposal. I want to speak to those of us, and I know that in some ways, like I'm preaching to the choir because you're here in worship. It's not lost on me. But I do believe that there 
is a temptation for us to think of worship as something that just fills our calendar instead of something that shapes our calendar. That fills our calendar instead of something that shapes our calendar. Worship is not just one more thing that keeps us busy in the pursuit of fullness. Worship interrupts our busyness and invites us into fullness by inviting us into relationship with the living God. Worship is the center then that holds it all together. It provides us a vocabulary of faith. It opens our eyes to see ourselves for who we are, to see God for who God is, and to see the world for what it is and what the world could be. I'll close with, with, this, with this story. I mentioned uh, Chris Holmes, who's here in worship today, our scholar in residence. He's just launched a, a hybrid course, a very engaging hybrid course uh, called Exploring Howard Thurman Through Spoken and Written Word. Uh, Thurman, Dr. Thurman, was a 20th century theologian and educator and a civil rights uh, leader whose preaching and teaching has gained a lot of traction over the last two decades or so as more and more scholars are compiling his sermons and his writings. And it's become really important for many of us and, and has great import in shaping our leadership life in the church. Chris invited um, uh, Boston University professor, Reverend Dr. Shively Smith, uh, to teach this course on Thurman. She's an expert on Dr. Thurman. And Katie, my wife, one of our pastors, is taking the course. She came home uh, after the first uh, session, and she wanted to tell me the opening story that Dr. Smith told. It was the story of how she came to be engaged with Dr. Thurman's sermons and his writing. She said when she was 17 years old, her brother, who was 15 at the time, was diagnosed with cancer. She said that it took him nine months to be formed in his mother's womb, and it took nine months for that cancer to end his life. She said at that moment when he died, grief came over us all, and I and our family just tried to figure out how to live in the shadow of such trauma. She went on to describe how how her grief was made manifest in a very particular way. She said that when her brother died, she stopped talking. She was 17. She stopped talking. Didn't talk to her parents, didn't talk to other family members, didn't talk to her teachers, didn't talk in church. She just stopped talking. People tried to get her help come into her life and, and give her the gifts that she might need to, to find her voice again. And it wasn't until someone gave her Howard Thurman's Meditations of the Heart. It's a collection of prayers, a collection of meditations on the Christian life. It wasn't until she started reading that book that she began to find her voice. Dr. Shively credits Thurman's words as giving her back a vocabulary of faith, but not just a vocabulary of faith, but a vocabulary of doubt. Not just a vocabulary of hope, but a vocabulary of lament and honesty to bring her whole self into this story, to bring herself and all she was experiencing into the words of her life. She found her voice and she began to speak again. And I think in a similar way, worship gives us a vocabulary of faith. 
I think it gives us a lectionary of faith. But it also gives us a lectionary and vocabulary of doubt. It gives us clarity and understanding even when we lack clarity and understanding. It gives us a vocabulary of longing, of who we want to be and what we want the world to be. In that way, worship shapes the the cadence and tone and, and rhythm of our voice. Worship helps the scales fall from our eyes the way the scales fell from Paul's eyes to see things as they really are. And most importantly, worship orients us to Jesus Christ, who alone deserves our allegiance, who alone deserves our praise. Look, in these pandemic, post-pandemic days, our rhythms of worship have changed dramatically. It's not lost on me or the pastors of this church or the leaders of this church that the habits of of worship have, have drastically changed. But what I'm encouraging us to be ever mindful of as we continue to gather as a church in these post-pandemic days is that we would be keenly aware of what's actually happening here, what's actually taking place in worship, to be aware that even though we may walk in and our bodies are shaky or our spirits are shaky and unsteady, that, that we're aware that the Holy Spirit will give us the people we need to hold our hands and to lead us to the places that we need to go. For some of us, we're keenly aware that we've made things worthy that don't deserve our allegiance. And each and every time we gather for worship, we hear the words of absolution, the words of forgiveness, that I love you and you're forgiven. And now is another opportunity by my grace to be faithful. Some of us have lost our voice, maybe not literally, but spiritually. We've lost our voice because of the circumstances of our lives. And it's in worship where by God's grace we might find it again and find it we will. Worship is the crucible of the Christian life. It's the crucible for the formation of Christian leaders. So I want us to think about what it might mean for us individually and corporately to join the chorus, to lend our voice to the songs that praise Christ today and the ways in which those songs help us orient our lives to God's purposes for us and for the life of the world that God so loves. Let us learn to sing these songs. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, we pray it. Amen.